DP World will be a private company after its decision to delist its shares from NASDAQ Dubai. We explain what this decision means for the ports and logistics operator and the region's capital markets. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is Kelsey Warner, our future editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. Uh, we'll get straight into it. Parent company, Port and Free Zone World, has offered to acquire the 19.55% of DP World that is traded on NASDAQ Dubai, essentially returning the company to private ownership. It's going to give shareholders an almost 30% premium on the share price before the announcement as a sweetener. Kelsey, how's the reaction been to this quite important news? I think it's an exciting step change for DP World potentially because it means a shift to growth. With the announcement came this idea that we're in the top five and we want to be number one. And they weren't getting the trading volumes that they kind of needed. And so they're, they're going private. And I'll quote from uh, the DP World chairman, Sultan bin Salayim, about sort of the wider reasons behind this. And, and we'll come back to sort of the specifics that you mentioned about the share price, trading volumes, the fact that they think that shares on that exchange don't reflect the adequ- adequately the value of the company. Right. And I'm going to probably just read your analysis back to you, Mustafa. But <laughs> That's a good plug. Yes. For the, and the national.ae. Yeah. <laughs> So DP World Chairman Sultan bin Salayim said this in the company's press release, the global ports and logistics industry has been undergoing a significant transition. DP World must be able to continue responding effectively to this rapidly changing landscape and to invest in the future. Returning to private ownership will free DP World from the demands of the public market for short-term returns, which are incompatible with this industry, and enable the company to focus on implementing our mid- to long-term strategy, which is to your point about being on a growth footing, which they have been, but allowing them to not be shackled, on face value, allowing them not to be shackled by market orientation. or just kind of instant reaction from investors that would shift their stock price. But I mean, I wonder, my open question sort of is, is if they weren't achieving the volumes that they wanted, they, they weren't actually dealing with a whole lot of volatility vis-a-vis market sentiment. So when you're talking US-China trade tensions, when you're talking Middle East geopolitical uncertainty, coronavirus becoming an, a new theme of uncertainty that we're facing now... They weren't. They there. There wasn't the trading volume to actually see any change. What do you think? Yeah, uh, you make a you make a valid point. Uh, if we if we kind of take a step back and look at what DP World is, then perhaps it can kind of answer that question. Uh, Twenty eighteen revenue eight point five billion dollars. A bit da earnings three point three billion dollars for twenty eighteen. I mean, those are big numbers. The it has ports, terminals, which it operates. It's a logistics company now. It has maritime services. It runs economic zones. It couldn't say all of that in 2007 when it listed. Right. It was a different proposition when it listed. It was a uh, international ports operator, yes. Strength, base of strength in the UAE, Jebel Ali port, etc. But what it's become now, it's global footprint. Right, from real ports operator to logistics provider and sort of this all-encompassing, you know, spider web of globalization and supply chain management. Yeah, it can be all things to all people all of a sudden. And I I interviewed uh, Sultan bin Salayim a year ago um, at the World Economic Forum. This is when sort of the U.S.-China trade war hadn't 
reached its sort of uh, conclu- kind of phase one conclusion, if you like. It was still there was still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, he was sanguine. He was very relaxed. He was this is all going to work out. Um, and he was talking about how they were investing in sort of longer term, bigger picture stuff like technology. Sure. I mean, I think the Hyperloop investment is one of the biggest indicators of where DP World is kind of going. So explain to me a bit. What is that? What so, are they doing? Exactly? Hi- well, the Hyperloop, I think everyone thinks of Hyperloop as how we're going to get to work really fast in the next 10 years. And what they think of is, OK, bear with me, Hyperloop cargo speed. So their whole thesis around Hyperloop is that it can provide flight speed at trucking prices. So if you can install a Hyperloop and connect ports to rail and road infrastructure, you can very rapidly get medicine, technology, fast fashion to uh, end users far faster. And that was, I think the Hyperloop investment is an indicator to me of their openness to innovation in general. Yeah, so they've invested big in robotics and something that they call box-based storage, which, bear with me, it's not that far into the weeds. It's basically just putting the uh, shipping containers onto tracks and automating the system to really triple the potential capacity they have at their ports and make them more efficient against their competitors. So box-based storage, robotics, and then also blockchain. They're implementing blockchain kind of throughout so that they can track where everything has been from supplier to ultimate seller. So, and, and what we know about innovation and the development of technology is what you're aiming for initially isn't always what you end up with. And sometimes either through serendipitous discovery or just the process of discovery, you you, you find out things. Right. Can surface different opportunities, can surface different challenges that you didn't expect to maybe foresee if you were to implement something like this. It, it also can look really weird to investors and can make them nervous. So um, Going private could be good for their agility innovation track. And so, and so to come back to your question of, of you know, if, if they are on a market, NASDAQ Dubai, which actually when they listed was called the Dubai International Financial Exchange and had grand ambitions as an equity market, a regional hub, um, an international level market, um, which is now the NASDAQ Dubai, has actually become predominantly uh, a, a listing center for Sukuk and bonds. Um, the equity listings are, are quite... Small, Minimal. relatively speaking. Right. So DP World won't say goodbye to the capital markets because it has not just the NASDAQ Dubai, but sort of 20 listed instruments, fixed income instruments. And there will be a certain amount of discipline and rigor associated with that in terms of disclosure and reporting to creditors. But creditors, to your point about investors, shareholders are a different breed. Creditors have their coupon, they have their payment, they know what they're getting into in terms of the end result. While shareholders are a little bit more impatient, um, we want to see not only our share price increasing, but we want to see dividends increasing. And sometimes if you're investing and reinvesting, there isn't always the room to please the market. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, you talk about companies like Apple. Right. I mean, and then I'll argue against myself almost from what I said about 20 seconds ago, which is some of the biggest innovators are publicly listed companies and they've said that they don't pay attention to their daily share price. Well, I'll argue with you. Are they innovators anymore? The big, the really big companies, are they still innovating? I mean, the innovation tends to come from small companies. That they are able to acquire. Yeah. Once, <laughs> once, once they get that big, then, you know, structures, procedures, the culture changes. Right. They're playing a massive game of Pac-Man at this point. They're yeah. not necessarily innovating. Yes. But they, they, Apple can please the market. It's got a huge cash pile. We'll go in and buy, do share buybacks. Can play that game. We'll want to play that game. Um, it, it's, you know, you're talking about that level. If you're talking about sort of Tim Cook... Jeff Bezos at Amazon, 
Brennan Page at Alphabet, Google, um, you know, these these companies, Elon Musk, our friend at Tesla, who seems to, you know, treat the market with disdain. Yeah. Um, he, la- so, he seems to laugh in the face of it. And, and actually almost plays the market at its own game. Absolutely does and has gotten in trouble for doing so. Um, yeah, his Twitter. Yeah. His Twitter presence, for example. But anyway, yeah. So, so okay, the Nasdaq Dubai isn't the New York Stock Exchange. It's not at that scale. But you still have to deal with shareholders at least once a year with your AGM. You you have to disclose more often than to creditors. And you have to justify a lot of your your planning. And if we look at the end of last year, DP World already said the outlook was uncertain. Um, and since then, look at what we've already had in 2020. Right. It's been a roller coaster. So geopolitical tensions in the Middle East have ramped way up. And then this coronavirus, if you look at some of the grim forecasts for the first quarter for Chinese economic growth, China being so important to global trade, do you really want to be constantly having to pivot to right. these questions all the time? Um, you know, in that sense of the world is only becoming more uncertain, not less uncertain. And so if you're always beholden to a short-term market, it seems right. a wise move to do this. And the market they joined in 07 looks a lot different from the market they're in Correct. here in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. And if I'm allowed to use as a, a contrasting illustration, I suppose NMC Health, mm. which is dealing with the vagaries of the modern uh, equity market, dealing with um, Muddy Waters' is a report in December, accusing them of accounting irregularities, the impact on the share price, and the resulting discovery of the potential for historic misreporting of the stakes of, of significant shareholders and right. then the resignation. Of B.R. Shetty and two directors yesterday. Yeah, and B.R. Shetty founded NMC Health in 1975. So, And this is, this is sort of the, I guess, the conclusion of a journey. I right. mean, if, if, you know, in politics, everything ends in failure, perhaps in the stock markets at some point, everything ends in failure too. I think that's that's, but we're not seeing the DP world end as a failure. We're seeing it as the next step. Yeah, but and the, we could see them come back, maybe on the London Stock Exchange or a New York Exchange or Hong Kong or something like but that. But do you, do perhaps. they have? Yeah, but do they have they, the, what Sultan bin Salem is saying and what his CFO has said, which is we don't think you know our listings reflecting accurately the value of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You said you know they they want to be number one in the world. Do they have time? To wait for the market to say, yeah, you're a success. No, they do not. So in this case, the market has failed them. I, I wouldn't say... <laughs> Sweeping statements No, here. but we don't want to be unfair to Nasdaq Dubai and say per se Nasdaq mm. Dubai, but I think the changing nature of stock markets, I mean, or maybe not the changing nature, maybe they become more intense. Benjamin Graham, the father of value investing, his quote often repeated, the stock markets are a short-term voting machine and a long-term weighing machine of the company's substance. But you know who's got time to be long term anymore if you aren't Warren Buffett, essentially, um, and and management are under immense pressure every day. Social media, that kind of commentary. I mean, already there's a PR fuss about this move to delist, and in the short term, no one, you know, you, you, if it's if, a PR fuss as long as the news cycle will be, and I think we'll have moved on. Event, we'll move on eventually. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, let's talk more widely about capital markets. What does this mean? We we talked, you and I, end of last year, uh, Saudi Aramco being a real vote of confidence in Saudi and regional capital markets. It's going to be, you know, we're going to have to wait to see if somehow this DP World delisting is is taken as the opposite. I think that 
the stock market will be and is always going to be a really effective way to realize value. And so in Saudi Aramco, they sold a really small stake. But then, um, you know, we, as we saw in the IPO process, it wasn't that straightforward. They ended up with a local listing, which is probably the right thing for them. But there was a lot of discussion over international listings, where to go. And it, it went to show, you know, that whole point of a voting machine, everyone thinks they've got an opinion and the right to, to air their opinion if you're a publicly listed company. Right. Which is a good thing in, in the wave of increased transparency and increased, you know, participation in those public yeah, markets. Yeah. And I think that and yeah. they probably will say, how does this help governance? How does this help transparency? These are all important things. If companies say, if this does become a trend and companies either start going private or they start saying, you know what, maybe the stock market isn't an option. But we, if we look at a live example, Kareem uh, ended up being sold to Uber for its shareholders, initial early investors to cash out. Mm-hmm. Instead of going to the stock market, remember Fadi Gandor, uh, you know, legend in this region, said it's a shame that Kareem didn't list. Right. But in hindsight, look at what Uber's going through. With its share price on, you know, a bit of a nosedive since it listed about a year ago, actually. Um, Yeah. It's a distraction. But anyway, um, let's let's move on from that because uh, we had mentioned Jeff Bezos. And uh, very quickly, I just want to touch on something that he's he's announced. Sure. Richest man in the world is putting up $10 billion for Bezos Earth Fund to tackle climate change. Announced on Instagram. We don't have nearly any details yet, but as as you said earlier, it's like he woke up this morning and he remembered he's the first. <laughs> I did. I said that off record, I think. I think off recording. But now I'll say it again. Yeah, please I'll say, say it again. Uh, first of all, to be fair, let me take it, him at face value and say $10 billion for climate change at a time when maybe some are saying, you know, we don't want to, contribute to this fight or we don't think this fight is real but i will say that you know okay we can say better late than never but if i'm being critical of him where was he five years ago with his 10 billion 10 years ago what where, so i mean he, yeah he's been a billionaire since 1999 uh and he only really started getting into philanthropy in about 2018 he gave two billion dollars to combat homelessness inspired by what he saw in his home state in seattle washington and now in 2020, 21 years after his first, I mean, he's sort of waking up to his role. It seems better late than ever. Sure, uh, I really wonder what role this will play as kind of an R and D fund almost for what Amazon needs to do because they're one of the biggest logistics data center providers in the world, and they're they have major problems to solve to be carbon neutral as they've pledged by 2040, and so. That's a big question mark, how a company that size does that in a way that they're still as profitable as they are. So sure, it's a great humanitarian step, but it also, you know, there's a real economic commercial mandate that Jeff Bezos is waking up to every morning against the realities of climate change and the commitments Amazon has made, I I, think. I mean, this is, but you know, again, I can't help but be be skeptical. Skeptical, skeptical Because, you know, they, at, at at face value, again... $10 $10 billion for climate change. Thank you very much. Great for everyone. But at the same time, it's easy for the world's richest man to write a check he's not going to feel. And then that's the answer to every conversation about climate change, about Amazon's carbon footprint, about everything it's doing to the environment. But I gave $10 billion, But I gave $10 billion. Sure. You know? Yeah. Zip it. I gave $10 billion. <laughs> I hope it's not hush money. I think you might be correct that it is a bit 
as characteristics of hush money, potentially. But I think as a uh, potential proven ground, because he said he's going to be, these are going to be in series of grants to NGOs, research facilities, that sort of thing. Like, yeah, let's put some big money behind figuring, because these still are mysteries to us, how we're going to, as a planet, like, solve this crisis. So we do need big money. We also need, you know, systemic policy changes to go along with them. But, you know... I hope it's uh, part of a continued awakening of Jeff Bezos as a philanthropist. Well, I think what it does show for sure, because he's not he's different from Elon Musk, where Elon Musk is going to do what he's going to do no matter what. In mm-hmm. that sense, I don't care what people say about me to the detriment of himself at times. While clearly Jeff Bezos cares what people think, it's not just enough to invest in space, which is what, you know, you're either you're either of Bill Gates, I'm down in the you know in the grassroots and I mean, I inoculating think, kids but it should also or be I'm, out, in, I'm in space bill gates didn't start his foundation until he stepped down as ceo yeah. of microsoft so he really i think there's also a conversation to be had around how the wealthy come to philanthropy and at what point in their timeline That's and true. there and so you know he's got a conflict of interest basically is what is, is what i'm hearing yeah the, the, <laughs> the tldr of this is the conflict of interest really because amazon and blue origin I think the Blue Origin angle is also really interesting because a lot of what we will... That's the space venture. That's his space venture. And really what is these days, according to this new Frontline documentary, is where he's spending most of his time is on space. But a lot of the problems we're going to have to solve to make our lives sustainable here on Earth will also be applied to what we do in space. Correct. So there's sort of this little feedback loop I'm detecting here in this, um, the Jeff Bezos. It could also be the Jeff Bezos Space Fund. as far as I'm concerned. Well, we'll leave it there with Jeff Bezos. Uh, Kelsey Warner, thanks so much. Good to be here. Thank you. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. HSBC, Europe's largest bank, will restructure its global operations as it cuts costs and merges businesses after pre-tax full-year profit for 2019 slumped. Bahraini alternative asset manager Investcor plans to launch a second private equity fund targeting deals in the Middle East, North Africa and Turkey region this year. And Finland, the world's happiest nation, is drawing up a financial literacy strategy for citizens amid a huge rise in household indebtedness. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe or leave a review. I thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time. <laughs>